Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. nice thank you good morning everybody it happened um, just a few weeks ago and it was very definitely a first in my life had never happened to me before I was riding a bus late at night and during that bus ride the bus driver uh, threatened to kick me off of the bus for my bad behavior how did this happen I hear you Wonder. Well, I was, um, I was on a train and uh, strikes were happening. I won't name the, the railway company in case you know someone from Southern Rail. And <laughs> I was riding home from London and uh, suddenly the announcement came, this train is now cancelled. And so we have a, an alternative bus service for you. Oh, praise the Lord, I cried in my heart, and uh, we got off the train, got onto the bus, and uh, as I got onto the bus, I noticed that there was this young couple, and they were chatting with the bus driver, and they, they I, I like to listen to other people's conversations. Anybody else here like that? Kay, my lovely wife, this is her hobby, listening. We go out for dinner, we don't talk to each other. Sometimes I'm talking to her, and she goes, shh, shh, shh. Honestly, I'm, I'm going to buy a surveillance equipment for Christmas. It's that bad. Anyway, I like to listen to other people's conversations. And uh, I overheard the, 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 the guy. He said to the bus driver, he said, look, you're going you're to drive right by our house on your route. And our house is two miles from the station. By just stopping and opening the doors, this let us hop out. It could save us a two-mile walk. And the bus driver said, no. I mean, he was really, you know, aggressive about it. So... The guy said, oh, okay. So we, we went off on our journey, and we got to, this, um, to their town, and we got to where they lived, and there's a traffic light there, and so we're stopped like right outside their house. And so they come down the aisle of the bus, and they said, sir, look, could you just open the door? We'll just hop out. And, it's, it, it, it. and the bus driver went ballistic. He, he put the handbrake on, which was helpful, and he jumped up, and he's waving his fists around, using words not familiar to myself as a Christian leader. <laughs> so I thought, right, it is time for me to intervene. So I jumped up and I stood beside this passenger and I said, I said to the bus driver, I said, listen, mate, uh, I think you're bang out of order. Because intervention of this type is very useful if you use vocabulary from EastEnders. It's sort of... Quite, you know, I'm going to get my brother Phil and he's going to sort you. I said, I think it's a bit out of order. I said, you know, they were just asking you to open the door and you might not want to open the door, but you could be nice about it. You don't have to use those nasty words. And the bus driver looked at me and he went, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick you off the bus as well. And I thought to myself, well, 
That'd be handy because it opened the door and then they'd be able to <laughs> get off. Result, result. But it all went very badly when I simply went to stand alongside somebody who needed a bit of support. As the Apostle Paul gets to the end of this great letter to the Ephesians, he, he zeroes in on a man who has consistently stood at his side. Through thick and thin, through some very difficult circumstances, his name is Tychicus. And Tychicus, we don't know much about him. He is mentioned in Scripture just five times. His name means lucky, which is entirely unhelpful, because if there was such a thing as luck, he didn't have much of it. He went through some harrowing experiences, navigating through the, the uh, great riot in Ephesus that Paul was at the center of. He traveled with Paul to Rome, spent time with Paul when he was imprisoned in Caesarea, stood with Paul as Paul stood before kings and governors, was with Paul during that terrible shipwreck en route to Rome, and then was with Paul during house arrest in that great city as well. In other words, this man has stood beside Paul wonderfully, and Paul now celebrates him. But then the second thing that Paul does at the end of this great letter is he celebrates not only his friend, and that's a great thing to do, but he celebrates this wonderful truth that we, the church, are the family of God. Earlier in the letter, he talked about us being members of one another. Chapter 4, verse 25. He's spoken of us being part of the same household. Chapter 2, verse 19. But, but now, Paul zeroes in at this, in this closing statement. And he refers to Tychicus as a brother. And then he talks about the brothers and sisters. He is using family language. It was the Greek writer... Uh, Lucian, who lived from around A.D. 120 to around 200, he said of the early Christians, and I quote, it's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other. They spare nothing. Their first leader, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. But my point is this, when we come to these final words in Ephesians, we are coming to talk about a priceless truth that is more than a romanticized cliche or a slogan. Ladies and gentlemen, we are family. We are not perfect. We haven't arrived. We haven't got it all together. But we are family. So what kind of family are we? Well, first of all, we're a family of care and encouragement. A family of care and encouragement. Uh, Paul talks about Tychicus. He says he'll tell you everything so you'll know who, how I am and, and what I'm doing. I'm sending him, he says, to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. We're a family of care and encouragement. That is so vital for us to know because currently our culture seems so lonely. Half of all Americans say that they don't know the names of their neighbors. A recent poll in Britain of 2,000 British people found that a third said they could not pick out their next door neighbors in a police lineup. How many would agree with me that you don't really want to have to pick out 
your next door neighbors in a police lineup. And famous best-selling books have been written about the decline and the disintegration of community. The most famous, perhaps, Bowling Alone, the collapse and revival of American community by Robert Putnam. He says, we're less likely to vote play bridge, invite friends over for dinner, or it seems join a bowling league. There's The Vanishing Neighbor by Mark Dunkelman. Dunkelman says the people next door have become strangers. In 1970, a survey was taken asking people if they ever socialized with a neighbor. In 1970, 20% said they never, ever socialized with a neighbor. In the year 2000, 30% said that was the case. Donkelman says, we're getting lonelier and lonelier. Now, why is that? You say, Jeff, how can that be? Because we've got, we've got social networking. Surely we're more connected. But ladies and gentlemen, if we fool ourselves into believing that by taking a photograph of the bacon sandwich that we ate for breakfast this morning and posting it on Facebook that the world may stand amazed in wonder that that somehow is going to build community. We're really fooling ourselves. And of course, the reality is, with, with Facebook, if you just don't like somebody, you just unfriend them, don't you? I know that. I get unfriended two to three times every week. I'm not bitter, but it's true. Technology means that 80% of us have the internet, 86% of us have cell phones, and yet it seems that with all of our technology, we're not growing any closer. T.S. Eliot said, television is a technology that enables millions of people to laugh at a joke at the same time, and yet remain lonely. We're a more mobile community than ever before. Not only traveling more, and the stats are that in terms of flying, there's been a 50% jump in terms of air travel, uh, uh, 900% jump, I should say, in 50 years. Massive mobility, massive amounts of relocation. There's a diversity of interests as well now. Sociologists have noted that there used to be three TV channels in Britain, what that meant is that if, um, I don't know, Benny Hill is the only one I can think of, and probably not especially appropriate, but if Benny Hill was on on Saturday night, that half the nation was watching that. But now with X hundred channels, the commonality that we share, even in the things that we talk about, is gone. I have to say, I've wondered whether that's one of the reasons that Strictly has gone so ballistic. I've got to say that if I was a betting man, and I'm not, if you'd have told me that basically a revamped, glossy version of Come Dancing would take the nation's imagination by storm, I would have said, you have been sniffing something. <laughs> but is it possible, ladies and gentlemen, that a, the feel-good factor of the glitzy Strictly idea it's, it's fun, it's crazy, it's Ed Ball's pirouetting, dear Lord help us. But it gives us something to talk about. Who's, who's going to be out this week then? There's a commonality in the midst of diversity, but so often that doesn't happen. And then neighborly expectations have changed. In 1950, a good neighbor was somebody who came over to your house with pie. In 2016, a good neighbor is someone who minds their own business and lets you live your life undisturbed. And here we see this truth. 
that God has called us to be a people who have been ushered in from the frosty cold of isolation into genuine family and community. And Paul is able to celebrate that. He's able to assume that they care about him. That's marvelous. Without even necessarily uh, responding to a direct appeal, he knows that his brothers and sisters care about him. It's also quite marvelous because he's so selfless. I mean, the guy is in prison, possibly on death row, chained to a guard. He's getting up in years. His health is probably failing. From a cross-reading of Philippians, we know that some of the Christians in Rome were attacking Paul at this time. It would have been very easy for Paul to center in on himself in his closing words to the Ephesians. But he's celebrating care, but he's being selfless with it. Can I just make this comment? Church will never work for you if it's all about you. You ever meet those Christians? They talk endlessly about themselves and and then they say, well, enough of me. What do you think of me? <laughs> and they live hemmed in by the horizon of their own self-interest. It's so easy to live that way. I, I caught myself doing that this week. I don't know why I need to confess this, but I need to confess it. How boring. I've been on tour with Searchlight Theatre Company over the last couple of weeks. I've been talking about generosity and encouragement. And we popped into a, a phone shop the other day so I could have a little chat with the nine-year-old behind the counter <laughs> about my tariff. And we're standing there, you know, waiting quietly for a conversation with the pre-adolescent. And suddenly... We waited there for about 10 minutes, and suddenly this couple just marched in and pushed right in front of us. And, and I was transformed. Talk about transformed living. I was transformed into Victor Meldrew. She said, I don't believe it. And my lovely wife, Kay, who is with me here today, she turned to me. This is absolutely true. And she said, well, darling, what a lovely opportunity this is for you to practice what you preach. Yes. <laughs> or, because you're living within the horizon of yourself, it's me, it's mine, it's what matters to me that matters. You go to the supermarket, you get into the express lane where good people with 12 items or less are permitted to go through. You're standing there, you're a good person, you have 11 items in your basket, you've checked. But now, you become suspicious that the evil man in front of you has 14 items in his basket. You know this, not because you sense it in the spirit, but because you counted. 14 items. 25 if you count the dozen eggs. Do we live our lives self. And Paul assumes care, but he's selfless. And he wants them to be encouraged. You know one of the greatest ways that we can encourage each other? By listening. By giving each other the space to express ourselves. Celebrated psychologist Paul Tournier has said, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, 
dialogues of the deaf. When we listen to someone, when we hear them, we value them. We can encourage each other by doing that, by noticing. Everyone wants to be noticed. My lovely grandsons are here with me this weekend. And I love it when they say, look, granddad, whether it's a drawing or a riding the bike or whatever. And we never graduate from the need to be acknowledged. I remember one time at Timberline, where I'm at in Colorado, I was walking down the hall. And in America, you say, the standard greeting is, how you doing? How you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. Great. How you doing? Fine. Great. Fine. And this chap walked past me, and I, I nodded at him. I said, morning. I said, how you doing? And I carried on walking. Carried on walking. So embarrassed to tell you this. And he got about 50 yards down the corridor. And suddenly he went, fine! <laughs> I mean, I laugh about it now, but I'm ashamed. I hadn't noticed. I had a guy come forward for prayer at Timberline. He said, Pastor Jeff, pray for me. He said, people, people don't notice me. He said, I go to parties, they forget my name. People just don't see me. And then I realized as we'd gone into, the, we were going into the prayer, couldn't remember his name. <laughs> oh Lord, bless this brother who you love and know intimately. Do we notice, do we encourage? Do you know, we could transform we can maybe transform our offices, our workplaces if we're blessed with a job, our marriages, our friendships, our church, if we would just encourage, catch people doing something right. Maybe wander around Kingsgate and look at all those lovely volunteers that you, those folks out there with the yellow tabard things and they're showing you where to park and maybe, maybe one time just wind the window down and say, Thanks for standing out in the rain. Simple, but it can transform a culture. Truman Cathy said, how can you tell if a person needs to be encouraged? It's easy. They're breathing. So Paul is celebrating here a family of care and encouragement. Secondly, he is celebrating a family experiencing peace, love, and faith. Peace, love, and faith. He says, peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to recover this word peace because we've miniaturized it. We've turned the word peace into something which just means an absence of strife or a sense of internal harmony or even having a quiet life. And by the way, the Bible celebrates a quiet life. It tells us that we should pray for our leaders so that we would have a quiet life. So there's nothing wrong with that. But actually the word peace, the biblical word peace, the Hebrew word shalom, is pregnant with meaning. The, the word shalom, it, it, the word picture that the Jews often use is of a man or a woman sitting beneath their fig tree, as they describe it, at peace with God, with their neighbor, with their friends, with their family, with themselves, and with their environment. It is a holistic peace, which means that 
somehow we are centered not just within ourselves in some kind of internal harmonization, but we are centered in a connected relationship with God and in community and with our family and, by the way, with our environment. The environment is a kingdom issue. Shalom. Unfortunately, the word has been plundered. When Scripture was translated and the Hebrew word shalom was translated to the Greek word irene, that means harmony and order. But it lacked that dynamic sense of a right relationship with God. It got even worse because when the Scriptures were translated into Latin, the word peace was translated to pax. And pax means legal order. And the suggestion there was that, that peace comes from me having my just rights. It's my right. It's all about me. We're back to me again. Whereas shalom is a beautiful, blossoming word that's holistic and speaks about us being in right relationship with God, with others, with ourselves. In this venue, we've celebrated baptism today peace with God available through Christ, that peace comes through his grace which is available, we accept it by faith and we walk in love. And I'm here today and I think our baptismal candidates are here today to say to every single person here, that sense of holistic shalom, that peace will elude you if Christ is not in your heart and life. And whatever else you might do in terms of success or accomplishment, if you want to be truly at peace and know that you have a life of purpose and know that your history has been dealt with and know that this mighty God is concerned in your unfolding steps, I want to say to you today that that happens as each one of our baptismal candidates really testified by their actions, that happens as we begin that relationship with Christ. The first service I ever went to really as an adult before becoming a Christian was a baptismal service and it was beautifully explained here today. It wasn't quite so well explained there so I thought, I don't know what's going on. It's like an aquatic mugging at the front. People being shoved under the water while grinning. And everybody else seeming to think this was a good idea. Clapping and applauding and taking photographs. But that night, I discovered that a decision need to be, needed to be made. And can I zero in with this? A surrender needed to take place in order for a peace to happen. I don't use this kind of language very often, but there is definitely someone here today who needs to hear the word surrender. It's time, sir, to surrender. You, you've been told, stand on your own two feet. Make it happen. Sort it out. It'll work out. And today, is an opportunity to just surrender. 
to the love of God and his loving rule in your life. I want you to know that a few minutes from now, nine minutes and 32 seconds from now, there's going to be an opportunity for that to happen. I want you to know that now so it won't come as a surprise. That opportunity is coming. Thirdly, thirdly, Paul is celebrating a family who walk in grace-fueled faithfulness. A family who walk in grace-fueled faithfulness. He says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, this, this phrase, undying love, as we're about to see in a few moments, has a twofold interpretation. But the first of those interpretations is that we are called to love Jesus to the end. Kingsgate is a church that quite rightly celebrates the truth that we serve a mighty God who is able to break into our lives with healing, setting people free. Do we not realize that through these waters this morning have walked people who previously were held in the chains of drug addiction and because of what Christ has done in their life, that mighty resurrection power has worked in their hearts and lives, and now they're free. Now they're free. And we celebrate that truth. We also balance that truth with the fact that suffering happens. Paul writes this letter. He says all that he's said about the mighty resurrection power of Christ, he says all of what he says knowing that Peter was miraculously set, uh, set free from prison twice, but he's in prison. What does that say to us? It says that there are some of us today, and we believe in healing, but we're still waiting for it. There are some of us today who are waiting for the test results. There are some of us today who are navigating long-term, draining circumstances. And I, if I may, I hope without sounding in any way patronizing, I would like to say to you, thank you. Thank you, Kingsgate, not only for being a church of faith, which is vital, but faithfulness, which is vital. And Paul writes these words from incarceration. And if you find yourself in that place, may you know grace as well. Because you see, Paul does not speak here of a God who abandons us to our circumstances, but rather the God who brings grace to us, sometimes to walk through them. Grace to you, he says. Well, the last truth is this, and that is that we are a family that will be together forever. A family that will be together forever. Paul speaks of undying love, and that's the second aspect to this phrase here, because the wording that he uses includes the word immortal. It is as if Paul is dropping us a hint right at the end of the letter. It's as if he's saying, and by the way, don't forget, everybody, this Jesus is not just for this life, but is for eternal life. This Jesus has beat the power of death and hell. He is raised again from the dead. And now in Christ, 
life eternal is ours. Since I've been with you, last, my mum passed away. And uh, it was a difficult last few weeks because, as you've heard, some of, some of you have heard me mention before, she had dementia, which steals dignity as well as memory. I sat with her through the night one night, and I'm pronouncing all these blessings on her and having a precious moment, you know, and the Lord bless you, mum, and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And then she woke up, and because she's got dementia, she thought, there's a strange bloke in my room. Get out. So she chucked me out of her room. Well, that's nice. And finally went back in and memory was restored for a while. She said, I've got, she said, I've got two sons, you know. I said, no, no, I'm one of them. I'm Jeffrey. She always called me Jeffrey. Only my mum and Kay calls me that when I'm bad, which is a lot. I said, I'm Jeffrey. And she said, uh, she said, yes. She said, you're very nice. And she died. And here's what happens. You know, you have the memorial service or the funeral. And there's cremation. I phoned the undertakers. I said, could you store the ashes? Because I'm going to be in America for a few weeks. And they said, oh, yeah, we've already got your mum here. I'm like, my mum, mum? My mum? It's a box of ash. And they said, it's all right. She won't be by herself. There's others here too. I'm thinking, what? You're in a cupboard. This is weird. And then you go and pick up the box of ash, you know, and you think, what do I do? You put it on the driver's seat or the passenger seat next to you. Do you put the safety belt on? You know, what, what are you supposed to do? And let me say this. I need to say this to people who are currently navigating bereavement, and I speak about it so personally because I want to speak to you. A box of ash looks really final. A body in a coffin looks really cold. The end. But if this book is to be believed and we stake our lives on it, this Jesus, they took him, they nailed him to a cross and they thought they were done with him. But on the third day, ladies and gentlemen, up from the grave, he arose. And his disciples were so stunned by it that they went on not only to live their lives for him, but die martyrs' deaths for him. A box of ash looks very final. But I choose to believe, will you believe with me, that the day is coming when reunion time will be there again. And so, when we face bereavement, we do not say farewell. We say good night. See you in the morning. Resurrection morning. This love 
and endures forever. I wonder whether we need to get heaven back a bit more. When I first became a Christian, we, were, we went on about the second coming a lot. You know, Jesus was coming back any moment. Were we ready? It was terrifying. It was really terrifying. I'd go to the supermarket with Kay. She'd disappear. I thought, that's it. I've been left behind. I'm looking around and she's knee deep in a freezer full of fish fingers. It, was, it wasn't taken at all. It was just frozen food. And there were all those charts. And this was going to happen. And that person was the Antichrist. And then they messed it up by becoming Christians, some of them. And all these books about heaven. And, and I'm wondering, ladies and gentlemen, when we, whether we've done the pendulum swing and we have lost the truth that Christ is not just for the three score years and ten, plus a few if you do well, of this life. But if the book is true, we believe it is, he is forever and ever and ever and ever. And you, sir, in Christ, are never going to be alone again, ever. Ever. And so Paul wraps this beautiful book up with a stun grenade of a PS. Those who love the Lord Jesus with love and dying. We are family.